And we were just very, very frustrated because we felt like we really had a strong offer and that we, there was no way anybody else was going to outbid us, mainly because we were looking at this property differently than anybody else. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. They can get double-digit returns without the need to find, negotiate, close, and manage their properties. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us. Me and my team would appreciate it very, very much. You can always go to my website, ellieperlman.com to listen to the episodes and read the show notes as well. Dan Hanford is our guest today. Dan is the founder of Hanford Capital, which is a national multifamily investment firm actively acquiring large deals over 100 units asset throughout the Southeast US. He has investments in $129 million worth of real estate and currently has over 1,300 doors in his portfolio. Dan will tell us a story about how he was awarded a 130-unit deal four weeks after he had lost it. That should be a great story, so let's get started. Hey, Dan, how are you? Great. Looking forward to this interview. It's going to be a great time. Great topic. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start with, you know, if you can just tell us a little bit about, you know, your background, what you do and, and how you got to real estate. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, my background kind of starts back when I was, you know, in, in I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, at, at heart. And my background is as a chiropractor. So I'm, I'm broadcasting from which is in Columbia, South Carolina. And I grew up in, in South Carolina, I know the market very well, but I have five non-surgical orthopedic medical clinics here in South Carolina. And so recently in the early part of 2018, I stepped away from doing that full time and I'm into the multifamily real estate full time. So it's just, this is kind of, you know, the reason why I transitioned into it is because I feel like in multifamily, there is the most advantages from a tax standpoint. So I was tired of writing six figure checks to the government from t- for taxes and wanted to be able to move that into my own pocket. So being able to invest in, in this type of an asset class of real estate allows you to be able to do that cash flow off the property and, you know, take advantage of the depreciation just to offset some of those gains. Interesting. And, you know, when, when we're talking about real estate, you know, there's so many things, so many ways to be involved in real estate and you chose to focus on multifamily. And is this what you do today? This is exclusively what you're doing today? Yeah, so I mean, I still have a thirty thousand foot view on and 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 hand on the clinic. So I own them still a hundred percent. So I have my Monday morning financial reports that I'll look at from three different departments in my company, and we have I'm I'm not 
there day-to-day managing it. So I have a good CEO in the position there to manage those things on a regular basis. But we are, I'll meet with my corporate director team. My corporate director is about once a month for about two hours, for about a two-hour meeting, kind of going over some of the high-level statistics and, you know, having them, you know, so I can make sure that the vision is still continuing with the with the businesses. And, and I could also have a couple other online companies that I've had for over 10 years that, you know, provide some passive income for me as for, for me as well. So I have a couple of different businesses and different ventures, but right now the full-time focus is on the multifamily real estate. Awesome. Awesome. So let's start talking about, you know, your story, your 130 unit deal. Can you set up the background for, you know, for this deal? How did you find the deal? Where was it? You know, what year are we kind of places on the map? Sure, sure. So this was in 2018 with this this particular project. You know, we started this process of, you know, looking into the multifamily space and multifamily arena for properties that we wanted to acquire. And we're looking in the Southeast. We're looking in Charlotte and Raleigh, Durham and Jacksonville, Orlando and Atlanta. And we also look some, some in Texas as well, but really heavily focused more on the Southeastern markets on, on this side where we are. And of course, you know, we're, we're, we're looking in South Carolina, but we weren't, you know, like actively trying to seek out relationships with brokers and different things like that to be able to seek these properties. And this one kind of fell in our lap. So we had one of our brokers that we had reached out to in Charlotte, North Carolina, that had one of these deals that was available. It was kind of interesting because we were driving to visit this broker in Charlotte. And on our drive up there, we get an email blast of this property being put on the market. Hmm. And so we were just really excited about this deal because you know, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. I drove by this particular property, you know, for the 27 years that I was there. And my business partner and I, my business partner would live there for like 15 to 20 years when he was in that market. And, you know, him and I both now live in Columbia, South Carolina, but we really like this market a lot. I think one of the biggest things with this property is, is that we almost got our emotions caught up into it too much where we might have made a bad decision, but we stuck with the the, the concept of using logic, you know, at the end of the day and not always just kind of keeping your emotions and tied into it because at the end of the day, we really wanted this property no matter what it cost, right? Because our emotions were so caught up into it and we ended up, you know, putting an offer on this property and we were told originally that this property was going to be, if we were in between like 8.4 million and 8.8 million, that we would be able to be in best and final. And they said, if you get it 8.8, that pretty much gets it done. You know, you pretty much going to have the deal. And so we, of course, went and did all the, the pre-LOI due diligence stuff and toured the property and walked some of the units and talked to the property management company, did our, our, our comp analysis around the area and really did a lot of research. And, you know, we even had our CapEx budget already laid out. There was a, so my, my business partner, Brandon, he, his background is in property and casualty and construction and, and, and estimating. And so he had a 660 page CapEx budget with 3D drawings of all the buildings and all the, the, the interiors and had everything down to the penny of the interior and the exterior renovations and everything. And so we had spent quite a bit of time and energy doing that. And, you know, we even pulled satellite imagery off from a proprietary software that he has. And that has allows him to be able to pinpoint exactly what the measurements of a roof are and the pitch and to see if we had to replace a roof, what would that cost and how would would that affect our underwriting and all of that kind of stuff. So we had a lot of that done before we even submitted the LOI. And we ended up submitting the LOI in the first round at 8.75 million because 
we ran the numbers and at the end of the day, it worked at 8.8, .8, but you know, you don't always want to go in at the, at your top end number, yeah. right? So we put it in at 8.75 million and, you know, a week goes by and the broker called us back and said, all right, well, there was like 35, 40 people bidding on this thing and you were in the best and final of the top five. So go, you know, but the original pricing guidance was, you know, like that, that 8.4 to 8.8 .8, and they said new pricing guidance, right? So now we're in this best and final around and they said the new pricing guidance is now 9.1 million. And so we're looking at this going, okay, well, we had to remove our emotions from it because at the end of the day, you have to go back to your spreadsheet and, and see what's the maximum you can, you can bid on something and still get the projections and the returns and being conservative with that underwriting for your investors. Because, you know, as a multifamily syndicator, you know, a lot of times we get confused as to who our customer really is. You know, it's not the tenants. The tenants are not our customer as a syndicator. Our customer is the investor. So we have to make sure we're protecting and watching out for our investors as much as we can because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, those are our customers. Now, obviously, when you're talking about the apartment business and the, you, know, you definitely have to have tenants to be able to pay your investors and various things like that. But at the end of the day, as a syndicator, our customer is our investors. And so we have to make sure that we, we, we remove the emotional side of things and, and always close ourselves on logic, if you will, by you know making sure that you always go back to your numbers and always go back to your underwriting. So we went back to the underwriting, went back to the numbers, and you know we, we could have made it work at 9.1 million, but obviously we would be, it would have been tight. It would have been tighter than we wanted to. And we really wanted to make sure we had enough cushion there so we didn't, you know, put ourselves in a bad position. So, you know, we ended up putting in a, but one of the other things about <laughs> this best and final and any best and final is, is that you never know if you're the only one that's bidding on this thing because yeah. they can tell you whatever you want, but you never know, you know? I mean, I don't know. Have you ever felt that way before? Absolutely. You can never know when the broker, you know, calls and says, you know, you want to improve your offer, you know, by two, three hundred, maybe five hundred thousand dollars. And I try, I mean, I understand it's, it, listen, it's a game. I understand it's a game. And you try to ask how many other offers are out there? I mean, how, and you never get straight answer. No. You never get, because, because what he's telling you, the broker is, you know, telling other, you know, other buyers. But I think some brokers are, you know, honest enough to say, listen, you came up, you're pretty close. And right now we're, we're saying the same thing to everyone. The first one who's, you know, going to make a higher offer is going to take it. So you know that, you know, you're not right now, you're not the highest offer some, or at least you can guess, but yeah, it, it's a game, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the psychology, psychology that I sometimes get, have a hard time with because, you know, I sit there and I look at these numbers and I go, there is no way that there, that anybody's going to bid up higher than what I'm bidding, you know, and things. But on this particular project, you know, they wanted us to be up at, you know, 9.1 million. And so we put our put in our final offer. We put it in at 8.9 million, which we thought was a pretty strong offer for this particular mm -hmm. asset. And so we put the offer in and we were even putting up $100,000 earnest money deposit that went hard day one. You know, so we were we were very confident that this property was going to was going to be able to close and move forward and we can we could raise the money to be able to take the project down and stuff like that. They also had a pretty tight timeline for closing, so they wanted us to close within 60 days, which, you know, it's not abnormal, but it's always nice to have a little bit of an extension just in case. And so we had to negotiate that into it. And so 
originally we were only going to put like 15 day extension in there just in case, because that would allow us to at least still close before the end of the year for even if with a 15 day extension, because at the time we had plenty of time. And so got a call back probably two days later, got the punch in the gut, basically saying, unfortunately, you did not get this deal. You know, you are the weakest link, you know, <laughs> maybe not the weakest, but you were not the strongest offer and they gave it to somebody else. It was actually a publicly traded REIT for 9.2 million and they were putting up $200,000 earnest money deposit that went hard day one. So with fewer carve outs. So we were putting up hard money, but obviously, you know, when you're putting up hard money, without even seeing the actual financials and the actual rent roll and stuff. I mean, you're, at, you're getting the rent roll in the T12, but who's to know that that's the actual yeah. numbers, right? Yep. So we had, you know, carve outs in there for our hard money that basically said that if there's any misrepresentation of the financials or misrepresentation of the property, then we would have the opportunity to get our earnest money deposit back if we decided to back out of the deal because of it. And so that other group didn't. They just basically said, here's $200,000. We're going to do $9.2 million and let's go. Yeah. And when you say hard for those who don't, you know, fully understand that, and we talked about it in in other episodes as well, putting the deposit money hard, meaning that if you're not going to close the deal, you're not going to see this money. It's it's gone. So the seller is going to take that money. You put the hard money as a show of, of good faith in a way, but also to be competitive. And sometimes you can, it depends on what you put on the offer. So you can basically say, we're going to, you know, the deposit money is becoming hard or half of it is, is becoming hard if, you know, unless there's going to be some circumstances that are going to, or some things are going to happen, such as, you know, financing or, you know, other events that when they occur, then you are eligible to receive your earnest money back. So you were willing to put a uh, hundred thousand a hard, the REIT not only outbid you, but also they were willing to put, you know, higher amount. How did you feel in that moment when you realized, because you're also emotionally invested in the deal, you really want it. And actually the numbers worked at, at that point. And then someone else, you know, decides, you know, to, to bid higher than you. And you're already seeing yourself owning the property and, and you really believe that this is it. There's a thrill in getting, you know, in getting the deal. How did you feel when the broker called you and, and said, game's over. Well, at first, you know, they, they, the broker was giving us a call. So, you know, of course we're getting all excited, you know? And so there's this emotional roller coaster that you're on of, you know, I can't wait for them to tell us we got it, you know? And then they pick up the phone and they're like, I just want to call and really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, have your offer and stuff like that. But unfortunately they, the seller, that way, the broker always blames on the seller. The yeah. seller has decided to move forward with a different buyer. And, you know, we asked them about the price and stuff like that. And they told us, and we were just, you know, very, very frustrated because we felt like we really had a strong offer and that we, there was no way anybody else was going to outbid us. We could be mainly because we were looking at this property differently than anybody else. You know, everybody else was just thinking about buying this property and then maybe doing a little bit of a light renovation interiorly and that's it. But we were looking at it and doing a pretty heavy lift on it, really repositioning it from a C-class property to a B-class property and taking it to the next level and being able to really push the rents up higher because of what we're going to do. You know, I think it ended up being right at about thirteen, fourteen thousand $14,000 a door on renovations, including the interior and the exterior. So it was a pretty heavy lift, especially for that particular market. 
but that market needed that and it needs it very well right now. So we were, it was really, really a punch in the gut. I will tell you that right now that it was not a very good feeling. And, you know, we both, thankfully my business partner and I basically are very level headed in the fact that we encourage each other. And, you know, he was like, and we were both kind of together just basically saying, it's all right. It just wasn't meant to be. It wasn't our property. So let's go on to the next one. And so we had, that's the kind of mindset you have to do is to just go to the next deal and move on. You know, mm-hmm. don't harbor not too much because there's nothing you can do to change it. It's already gone. Right. And that was the mindset. So you're mourning for a second there for the loss of what could have been a great deal that you emotionally, you know, that you really liked and emotionally was invested in. And you're moving on, you're starting looking into other deals. And then what happened then? Well, four weeks later, we're actually, it was funny because he was my partner and I, we don't share an office together. He actually usually works out of his house. And so he and I were having a meeting up here in my office in this room where I'm broadcasting from. And the broker calls us, calls me on my cell phone and I see it coming through. I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is because the deal didn't get, get go through, you know? And so sure enough, I pick up the phone and, and he was like, you know, unfortunately the, the original buyer just couldn't even get to the point of signing the contract. And so they, they couldn't agree on terms. And so they decided to leave and back out before even signing the PSA. So I had the broker called me and basically said, Hey, are you guys still interested in, in, in this, in this particular project? And, you know, were you willing to come in at the same amount, you know? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm definitely interested in this deal, you know? So let me do a little bit of, you know, checking on where our current status is on, on other LOIs and other projects and stuff like that. And I'll give you a call right back here in a couple of minutes. So my first call after that phone call was to my mentor. So, and that's why I feel like having a mentor in this space is important and very vital because I believe in trying to have a mentor that you have easy, free access to, not that you have to waste a lot of their time, but that you can pick up a phone and and they answer the phone or you shoot over an email and they get your response right away. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my mentor, I immediately pick up the phone with him and said, guess what? (laughs) I'm all excited. Guess what? We, we got this next deal. It came our way. And he, he had already been very familiar with that particular project and was really excited about it too. And you know, the, the thing I like about, you know, my mentor is that he's very direct. He doesn't spend a lot of time doing a lot of fluff. You know, it's really just, you know, ask the question, get done and boom. You know, I think if I looked at my phone, it was probably about a minute and a half, a 90 second phone call, but it was me telling him how excited we were. I got a phone call from the broker. We're going to get this deal. And of course, me having the business background and the business mind, I'm sitting here thinking negotiating, right? So I'm thinking, well, they're coming back to us now. Now it's four weeks later. The time has gone past and gone past more probably farther than they wanted to because they're probably looking at this thing thinking it's going to probably have to go into maybe the first of the year in order to close. if They don't get this thing locked up soon. And so I'm thinking I got all these lever pulls that I can, you know, reduce the hard money, you know, or reduce the offer price or something. And so, but that's my thought, my mindset, right? And so when I called my mentor, he was like, no, he said, if the number worked at 8.9 million, then do it at 8.9 million. He said, make that broker's life as easy as possible because it'll pay you back in dividends later on down the road when there's an off-market deal and they know you can close and they know they know that you're easy to work with and you're not going to, you know, kind of, you know, make their life difficult. And so I called the broker right back up and just said, we'll take it. At the original offer, submitted them a new LOI, had to sign within a day. And about, about a week and a half later, had the PSA signed and done. And we were on the road to getting that deal closed up. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, 
you got the deal, you lost it, and then a month later you got it back. Was everything peachy and and smooth from that point on? Well, everything for the most part, as far as like, you know, I'm the broker and getting all the information from property management and all that kind of stuff was, was fairly smooth. I mean, it was definitely a lot of work. There's a lot of small different things that have to go along the way that you don't realize how much is involved until you start to start to close a deal. And you realize that there's so many different pieces and aspects of actually closing a deal. But we, in this particular project, because we do syndication, we were raising, you know, 2.5 million to be able to to be able to get this asset. And so we raised the initial 2.5 million in about a four to five day period of time. So we raised it fairly quickly. We were surprised, but I think it's because the market is very strong that we're it's in Greenville, South Carolina. So it's a very strong market, even though it is a secondary market. It's a very well-known, very strong secondary market. And we got a really, really solid deal. And we're having, we have some really solid returns for our investors on this particular project. And so I think that you know, seeing that deal is what allowed us to raise it that quickly. So that was a good thing. But, you know, one of our investors was bringing $250,000 to the table and we got all the way until about the week before closing. And this investor called us up and basically said that he was in the process of being sued and that he was, he didn't find out about it until that week. And so he was going to have to hold on to his capital and he couldn't invest it. And of course, we're going, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll cut you on the next deal or whatever. And of course, back in our head, we're thinking, oh my, we've got to come up with another 250000 in the next you know, seven days in order to get this deal to close. And so sure enough, that was the, kind of like the secondary like, you know, hurdle that we had to get over is, is that stress. And it was, it, was, it was fairly stressful. I mean, I, it was really important for us to be able to you know, have those backup investors because those backup yeah. investors would allow us to be able to find that last $250,000 fairly easily, even though it was still stressful to try to find that money like in the last seven days before a deal closes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for sharing your great story with us. I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask all my guests. If you could look back and not sure how old you are right now, but you know, to your 20 year old self, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. Well, I think the biggest thing I would say that I would tell myself is that I need to earlier on start to invest in cash flowing properties that have a lot of depreciation to them because it's that depreciation that would have allowed me to be able to keep more of the capital that I don't have now because of not being able to invest in these types of assets because I've made a lot of checks that have been written out to the government, if you will, that are six figures or more. And I don't like doing that if I can help it. You know, obviously, you know, if there, if I have no other way to do it and that's what I have to do, I'll do it. But you know, if there's opportunities that are legal ways that I can hold on to more of my capital, that's what I would encourage my 20 year old self to do. And by the way, I'm 35 in case you were wondering. <laughs> All right, 35. So I, you're actually younger than me. Yeah, I wasn't sure if to ask you if you could look back, you know, 15, if you can look 15 years back or, or back 17. Or... Well, I'm in my 30s. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great, great. Well, thank you uh, so much for sharing your story. I, I also wanted to know, before we get to the last part, the last question of uh, the interview, why was this story so meaningful to you, you know, when that you actually were interested in, you know, coming on the show and sharing that with, with me and the audience? Well, I think that one of the biggest lessons that, you know, I've learned that I think and that other people can learn from this story is from the very beginning that once you know what's your maximum that you can spend on a property, 
don't try to overbid that. Don't try to overdo it because you know, there are times where you're going to get that call from the broker a couple of weeks or a couple of months later after a deal doesn't go through and then you get to have the opportunity to have that. So, you know, put your best offer in and if that's your best offer, great, live with it. And if you get outbid, it's okay. Move on to the next property because it might come back to actually come to you if it, if for some reason the first, you know, buyer backs out or isn't able to close. All right. All right. Great. So, Dan, if our listeners would like to reach out to you or find you, where can they do that? Sure. So, there's a couple of different places. You know, you can come to my website if you want to join us as one of our investor partners by going to HanfordCapital.com and find some more information about our group. We have a little button on there that you can click on if you wanted to submit your information to be on our investor deal flow list. Obviously, we have to we would jump on a phone call with you and make sure that our goals and yours aligned properly. But you can also, if you're interested in multifamily and just real estate and getting some education behind it and stuff like that, I have a group that's called Multifamily Investor Nation and you can find some information about it there at the multifamilyinvestornation.com. We have a YouTube channel. We have a Facebook page. We also, if you wanted to just shoot me an email and you have a question for me, you can do that as well. It's just dan at multifamilyinvestornation.com. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Dan, again, for being on the show and sharing your great story with us. And I hope you'll continue to do great in multifamily. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on, Ellie. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.